Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. As we awaited for news of Novak Djokovic's unvaccinated purgatory in an Australian hotel, another story of a tennis player missing from the Australian Open fell a bit out of focus. I'm talking about Peng Shui, a former number one, 36 years old, who disappeared after she accused one of China's most senior Communist Party leaders of sexual assault. Here in this episode, reporter and China expert Poppy Seabag Montefiore tries to answer a simple question. Where is Peng Shui and why was she silenced? On the 2nd of November last year, just after 10pm at night, one of China's top tennis players posted something on her social media account that grabbed the attention of the world. About three years ago, Vice Premier Zhang Gaoli, you and your wife Kang Jie took me with you to your home. You then took me to your room, unlike what happened in Tianjin over 10 years ago. You wanted to have sex with me. Peng Shui described being sexually abused by the former number three in the Chinese Communist Party, one of the most powerful men in China. That afternoon, I originally did not agree and cried the whole time. I was afraid and panicked. I agreed. Yes, we had sex. 20 minutes later, her post had disappeared. And soon, we discovered, so had she. By the next day, the story made headlines around the world. If a former tennis world champion, if any woman had alleged sexual abuse by such a senior politician in the UK or in the US, it would have been a big story. The woman would have been heard, the man, we'd hope, investigated. But that's not how it works in China. She knew that she was going to get into trouble for posting it. Why was this post seen as such a threat to China's Communist Party that Peng Shui had to be silenced? I'm Poppy Seabag Montefiore, and this is the Slow Newscast, China's Missing Tennis Player. I love tennis, I want to be on the court, and a sweat, fight, and I just want to be happy on the court. <laughs> what you can hear is Peng Shui being interviewed at the Australian Open in 2018. I've watched quite a few videos of Peng Shui from before 2021. She's relaxed in front of the camera and giggly. Can you please look at the camera okay. and just say happy? Just the word? Happy. <laughs> Peng Shui is the only tennis player in China to have been ranked world number one. In her case, for women's doubles, she's won around 24 titles. 
It's not easy to find out much about Peng Shui's life, but there's enough to build a picture of her as someone who carved out independence for herself at a young age in both her family and in a strictly controlled state sports environment. Her father was a policeman, her uncle a tennis coach. He introduced her to the sport aged eight. When she was 13, it was discovered that she had a congenital heart problem and against her parents' advice, she decided to have surgery so that she could keep competing. She grew up inside China's state sports system. Another Chinese tennis star, Li Na, published an autobiography in which she described it as repressive, the tennis coaching style inhumane but also very effective. In 2008, when she was 22, Peng Shui was given the option to leave China's state sports system. It would be risky. After a lifetime of having everything taken care of, she'd have to fund her own career, pay her coaches out of her winnings. She went for it, and she succeeded. She's earned a total of around $10 million, of which it's estimated around 2.5 belongs to her. Here she is on her way to winning Wimbledon in 2013. Shui, who was dumped out of the early stages of the ladies' singles, appears to be thriving on the double circuit. Her confidence at the net, an instrumental part of her game, was reaping the rewards for her and her partner. Let's go back to that late night in early November when Peng Shui pressed send on that now famous post. I know that for someone of your status, Vice Premier Zhang Gaoli, you said that you're not afraid. But even if it's like striking a stone with an egg and courting self-destruction like a moth to the flame, I will tell the truth about you. With your intelligence, I'm certain you will deny it or you can blame it on me or disregard it. In sending it, she had crossed a line, a line that she knew was there. During the 20 minutes it was online, enough people saw it, screenshot it, passed it on, that after she posted it, there was suddenly a spike of 2 million searches for the name Peng Shui on China's main search engine. But then, in China, the story was totally shut down. There is a complete blackout on all social media in China about Peng Shui's accusation. Peng Shui's case has become one of those most politically sensitive topics, just like the Tiananmen massacre. And Peng Shui disappeared. No one heard from her for weeks. And while her story had vanished in China, outside China, it was just getting going. Peng Shui hasn't been seen since November the 2nd, when the tennis star published shocking allegations about sexual assault at the highest levels of the Chinese Communist Party. Honestly, it's shocking, you know, that that she's missing. I mean... uh... High-profile players like Naomi Osaka and Novak Djokovic had called for more information. Osaka says she's shocked to hear about a fellow player who has apparently gone missing. When asked, a spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry denied all knowledge of the missing tennis player. I haven't heard of the issue you raised. This is not a diplomatic question. In other words, it's none of your business. The timing must have been excruciating for China's authorities because they were preparing to host the Winter Olympics in Beijing, 
which are due to take place on the 4th of February this year. On the 18th of November, over two weeks since Peng Shui had gone missing, the world finally heard from her. Sort of. of. The night in Beijing, Chinese state media CGTN said it had the scoop. An email purportedly written by Peng to the head of the Women's Tennis Association. It read, The news in that release, including the allegation of sexual assault, is not true. I'm not missing, nor am I unsafe. I've just been resting at home and everything is fine. Thank you again for caring about me. And then Peng Shui appeared. Sort of. On the 20th of November, the International Olympic Committee released still images of a video call between its president, Thomas Bach, and Peng Shui in her flat, smiling, surrounded by a shelf packed with colourful teddy bears, mascots. National Olympic Committee. The IOC saying Peng told Thomas Bach that she is, quote, safe and well, but would like to have her privacy respected at this time. The IOC statement doesn't refer at all to the sex assault allegation or why there was concern for her in the first place. On the same day, a Chinese state-affiliated journalist posted a video online of Peng Shui having dinner in a restaurant with her coach. Some people commented about how the video is odd because the coach, in his monologue to Peng Shui, repeats several times that the next day will be the 21st of November, as though he's date-stamping it as proof. This video reminds me of a dynamic that Chinese writer Yen Ge talks about in a piece in the New York Times called How to Survive as a Woman at a Chinese Banquet. And it reminds me of banquets that I've been to with Chinese officials. Dishes of steaming food stay largely untouched, like a display of the host's power. And so it is here. Dishes of food circle slowly on the lazy Susan in the middle of the table, nobody eating. Peng Shui sits there as her coach holds court. She's there in body, but from her face, she looks like she's somewhere else entirely, somewhere very far away. The IOC released a statement to the press on the 2nd of December, saying they were using quiet diplomacy to ensure her well-being and safety while they continued with the plan for Beijing to host the Winter Olympics. Only one man was willing to really stand up to China on behalf of Peng Shui, and that was Steve Simon, a bespectacled 60-something American, a former tennis player. He runs the Women's Tennis Association that was founded by Billie Jean King. This is him speaking to Christiane Amanpour on CNN. You've received emails from Peng Shui. In, in, you know, since you've taken your stance, do you have any reason to believe those emails? really come for her, were dictated to her? How would you characterize them? Well, I would characterize them as orchestrated at this point in time. The WTA have suspended all matches in China in 2022 and have asked China's government to investigate Zhang Gaoli, the politician Peng Shui had accused of sexual assault. This move means that the WTA will lose hundreds of millions of dollars. Nobody usually stands up to China like this. Not countries, not companies, not the IOC. This is a situation where we're dealing with right and wrong. And there's too many times in this world in which we're faced with challenges such as this, where we allow politics and 
and government and money and financials to to get into the way of of what the right decision is and we end up with compromised decisions when you get to sexual assault it cannot be compromised in any way shape or form and we're going to side on the side of what's right and wrong and in going where no one else had dared to go the global times china's big state tabloid labeled steve simon a hostile foreign force but on the international front China had this under control. They'd managed to satisfy the IOC. The WTA had suspended its China tournament, but China's largely closed for COVID this year anyway. They'd handled it. But inside China, although the Peng Shui story had been censored, it hadn't gone away. The moment she pressed send, Peng Shui collided with a constellation of political and social forces. No, no, that it has never happened. I mean, China's uh, elite leaders, that the most senior leaders are just a complete unknown. I mean, we we never know anything about their private lives. This is later Hong Fincher. She writes on feminism in China. The, the Chinese government is um, autocratic, and so no uh, transparency about their the leadership whatsoever. And so to have all of these incredible details coming from a famous tennis star about this senior retired leader, um, it, it's just un- completely unheard of and unprecedented. Peng Shui broke a basic taboo. For a high-profile individual to use their platform to criticize an official online is vanishingly rare. For anybody inside China to publicly criticize a former vice premier, that's unprecedented. And Peng Shui is the first woman who used her real name, her real identity, used her perspective to tell us the story beside the narrative of so-called affair. This is a well-known Chinese feminist, Lu Pin. She's the founder of a website called Feminist Voices that was shut down last year. She told us the relationship between those top party leaders and women. She exposed the relationship between a top party leader and his mistress. From the first day I met you up to today, I've never used a penny of yours. And I've never used you for any personal benefits. But a person's status is very important. I deserved all of this. I caught it disaster. From beginning to end, you have always asked me to keep my relationship with you secret, let alone tell my mother that we were in a relationship. Every time she brought me to the Xishiku Cathedral, I would have to change to your car to be able to enter the courtyard. She always thought I was going to your place to play mahjong and cards. We were transparent individuals in each other's lives. Your wife seemed like the empress in Empresses of the Palace. And I can't describe how bad I felt and how many times I wondered if I was still an actual person myself. So who is the former vice premier Peng Shui is addressing in her late night post? His name is Zhang Gaoli. And it's not that easy to get details on someone so high up in the party. The information that's given out on him is that he comes from rural China. His family were poor. His father died when he was three. He studied economics at university, got a job in an oil company, 
initially heavy lifting materials in a warehouse. That's where he met his wife, Kangjie. He joined the Communist Party and became the deputy party secretary at the oil company, then worked his way up the party. On his way up, he got to know Xi Jinping's father, one of the party's early revolutionaries. It's a classic party background. Now he's 75, 40 years older than Peng Shui. I spoke to businessman Desmond Shum, who's written about his experiences of power and corruption in China. He's met Zhang Gaoli and described him as a technocrat. To have a mistress in China is against Communist Party rules, but it's widespread and accepted until officials get purged for corruption. And then it gets added to the list of the things they're in trouble for. To be accused by China's Discipline Committee of moral corruption is party terminology for having three or more mistresses. But it works differently for people at the very top of the party, like Zhang Gaoli. Someone in the know told me that for these most senior leaders, if a mistress is required, she must be state-sanctioned. She needs to be on the party's books, someone over whom the party can have complete control. According to that same person, the party even has an office to handle this. It's their job to make sure that a scandal like the one Peng Shui set off never happens. To criticise the handful of men who've been part of Chairman Xi's Politburo Standing Committee, his cabinet, is so out of the ordinary in China that there was a moment of speculation that maybe Peng Shui's post was part of a factional battle at the top of the party and that Xi Jinping was somehow behind it. For people very familiar with China, it's been hard to compute that this could be an individual woman late at night on her phone, feeling miserable and furious and brave and daring to speak out about being sexually abused. But that's the thing. Peng Shui's post doesn't read like a dissident criticising China's regime. It's not political in that way. It reads more like a Me Too post. It's part of that discourse. Her post is both raw and sophisticated. She owns the idea straight away that she's an imperfect victim, that this is a love affair as well as a coercive, abusive relationship. I know I can't say it clearly, and that is useless to say. But I want to say it anyway. I'm such a hypocrite. I'll admit I'm not a good girl. I'm a bad, bad girl. The feelings between two people can be very complicated. I can't clearly explain. But after that day, I again began to open up to your love. In the days I interacted with you afterwards, purely from how we got along... You were a very good person and also treated me well. That It's very similar, actually, to any other victim of sexual abuse who has come out and spoken out and been emboldened by the Me Too movement to speak out. Writer Leita Hong Fincher. It can be, certainly in a place like China, an act of sheer desperation, just a last resort. And she said, like a moth drawn to a flame, even if I self-destruct, I'm going to tell tell the the truth truth about you. you. But that sentiment is quite common for 
any victim of sexual abuse who's going public. Um, it's just that in a lot of other countries, let's say um, America or, or the UK, you know, you're not going to be arrested or, or um, put in detention as a result of speaking out about your experience with sexual abuse. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts. Peng Shui's post was an act of self-destruction, and Peng Shui would have known it. Not only did she break a fundamental party taboo, but she created a huge moment in a movement that the party has for the last few years been working hard to suppress. Because the party sees Me Too and feminist activism in general as an active threat to what they call national stability, Peng Shui's post represents to them a threat to the country. It hasn't always been that way. When I grow up, you know, back to the mid-90s and the 80s, I mean, there was a lot of things going on. This is a Chinese journalist. We'll call her Abigail. She lives outside China, and she's asked to be anonymous. There's a poacher written by women and events organised by women and women dressed up in the wedding costumes and walking in the street advertising for their rights and anti the domestic violence. And that was a time that we feel like we do, we, we, we do have a voice. And then when the censorship started to tighten up um, back to 10, 12 years ago, um, yeah, and I 
I, I, I started to feel um, there's a suffocation in many parts of the social life. Just 10 years ago, it was possible to campaign on women's issues. But after Xi Jinping became Communist Party chairman in 2013, the government cracked down on civil society activism in general, and feminists were hit particularly hard. In 2015, a group of women preparing to campaign on the issue of sexual harassment were brutally detained for five weeks. One of the women, 25-year-old Li Tingting, spoke to Al Jazeera. We were only planning to go to buses and give people stickers with their consent. There were only five of us. I didn't think it was a big deal. But they said, how do you know it's not a big deal? I didn't expect to be arrested. I think that in the years since those five feminists were jailed, it's it, we can see that the government really does perceive feminism to pose a unique threat to Communist Party rule. Later, Hong Fincher wrote a book about and with those five women. So, first of all, these women were very savvy organizers. And so any kind of savvy organizer is going to be treated as a real troublemaker. And it, it is really extreme. I mean, the, the way these five women were treated um, in detention was extreme, incredibly hostile. A couple of them really needed urgent medical treatment and were denied medical treatment. And you see in the propaganda coming from the Chinese government that Feminist activists are accused of being tools of quote-unquote hostile foreign forces, or maybe they're accused of being spies for Western countries. That kind of language smearing these feminists, accusing them of being subversive, um, trying to undermine the Chinese government. And what is, what is new as of 2015 is that the Chinese government has now identified this new threat, feminism. From this point in 2015, grassroots organizations were shut down. Censorship and surveillance of feminist activists increased. And since then, activists online have found themselves in a race with the censorship algorithm, which is constantly updated decoding their puns and jargon. The hashtag MeToo is banned. But this is not to say that China hasn't been touched by MeToo. It ripped through several of China's universities from 2018. Professors lost their jobs. Universities established sexual harassment protocols. Last year, MeToo in China took down Canadian Chinese pop star Chris Wu, who was then arrested in Beijing on rape charges. And the party has recently announced a new draft amendment to the Women's Rights and Interest Law that for the first time will define sexual harassment. But there are cases reported which also show the distance still to go. In December at Alibaba, China's equivalent of Amazon, a woman who accused her boss of harassment was fired. And in the autumn, a former intern, Xianzi, lost her court case against a Chinese central television host who she claimed trapped her in a room and abused her. It's hard to work out how seriously China is taking sexual harassment. So I spoke to Darius Longarino. He researches legal issues related to gender in China at Yale. 
he discovered that between 2018 and 2020, there were 83 court cases involving the issue of sexual harassment. And only a small minority of cases were brought by the alleged survivor, saying that they had been harassed. By small, he means really small. Only six were brought by victims of sexual harassment. The rest? The majority of those cases were defamation or labor dispute cases in which the alleged harasser brought a case to court saying that their rights had been violated. Darius explained to me that in China, while a woman can sue her harasser, because of rules about the burden of proof in the Chinese system, unless she has video evidence, it's very hard for her to win. And that's something that Peng Shui hints at in her post. You said there were no transactions between us. That's true. With all the feelings and money between us, it had nothing to do with power and wealth. But I have nowhere to leave my feelings of the past three years. It's very hard to face. You were always afraid that I would bring some kind of recorder and leave evidence or something. Apart from myself, there is indeed no evidence left. No recordings, no videos, only my distorted real experiences. And this is precisely what's changed in the countries where Me Too has flourished. Her words count against his. Women's testimonies are listened to and can be considered evidence. Chinese feminist Lu Pin explained to me that progress in China happens in a very tightly controlled way. I mean, the Chinese government never excludes the possibility that they will respond to women's demands. Sometimes they will. They, they, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Uh, I think the, perhaps the key factor is, uh, is that who decide the agenda of women's rights. The government don't, doesn't allow us to set the agenda for them. They hold the power to decide at which point they will respond or not respond to our demands. And Lu Pin should know. She's lived in exile in the US ever since the Feminist Five, who she mentored, were arrested in 2015. At the time the police were rounding up the five women, they also went looking for Lu Pin. So the party will do what it can, when it can, in its own time, in its own way. A party report on the new amendment to the women's rights and interest law says as much. The draft amendment translates measures that meet the real needs of women's rights and interest protection, have proven effective in practice and have relatively consistent understandings into legal norms in a timely manner to ensure that women equally share the fruits of development. At the same time, we adhere to the principle of doing our best and doing what we can. We do not blindly imitate the practices of Western countries and we do not revise content that is more controversial or when the time and conditions for revision are not yet ripe. So I understand that Xi Jinping is all about control and Peng Shui's post is not part of his plan. But what I can't get my head around is why feminist and Me Too activists are seen as a threat to national security and as agents of hostile foreign forces. It seems so extreme. Is it authoritarian madness? Or is there some inner logic? To try to answer this question, I'm going to tell you another story. 
one that takes place just around the time when the party began to clamp down so strongly on the Feminist Five in 2015. After more than 35 years, China is ending its one-child policy. Now families will be able to have two children, but no more. The party had realized that the one-child policy had gone way too far. Why? Because the population is aging and its workforce is shrinking. That's an imbalance that will hurt China's economy for years to come. The policy is estimated to have prevented 400 million in additional births. But the two-child policy didn't work either. The birth rate in the world's most populous country, China, fell for a fifth consecutive year to hit a record low. So in May of last year, the Chinese government introduced a three-child policy. Later, Hong Fincher. And so we're seeing a lot of, uh, what I would say, coercive elements to this new three-child policy. And, and I believe that we're going to see more coercion in the future. Actually, I don't think the government has any other major crisis except for the population crisis. How to, how to make women have more children is <laughs> a big challenge. The irony here is that the one-child policy, though brutal in many ways, unwittingly brought about a generation of independent women quite unique in China's history. They're unique because for the first time in China, daughters got all the attention, love, investment in their education. Chinese journalist Abigail. Traditionally, only boys can carry the family line. And that's well stated in Chinese history. And girls have no inheritance rights in terms of property, in terms of title, in terms of money and everything. So when girls were born, when they grow up, they would be sent to their in-laws. They would be looked after by their in-laws and husbands. Because of one-child policy, the many families have no choice but to look after their own little girl and to treasure it, empower her, to let her to study, to go to university and, you know, to receive the best education, to find a good job and to become independent. This generation of women start to question why their voices have been suppressed. Peng Shui is part of this generation. Born in 1986, six years after the one-child policy was officially introduced. She's 36. She's single. She doesn't have children. The characteristic of this new generation, they have understanding towards what they really want in their life. And they, they try to escape from the traditional rules that impose on them, which was to become a mother and to look after the family, you know. A Chinese psychoanalyst once said to me that the unique thing about the modern Chinese psyche is that it has two superegos, the parents and the party, and it's confusing if they don't align. But perhaps what's even more overwhelming are the moments when they do. The combined pressure on women coming from the family and from the state is enormous. They try to say that your body doesn't belong to yourself. Your body belongs to the family. 
not just the whole family, the the city, and then the country. The country can't live without your body because without those babies, the whole country would decline. So this is the larger context that Peng Shui walked into in November 2021. The party's priority is to fix the demographic crisis, rescue the economy, and their own legitimacy. They've worked out a strong message for the part women need to play in all this, and Peng Shui's post is off message in many ways. No one has heard from Peng Shui since the 19th of December. When she retracted her claims on camera to a journalist from the Singapore paper Lian He Zao Bao, she looks stressed. She's pale and confused. She's asking the reporter to repeat the question. Her poise couldn't be more different from how natural and open she is in all the other media interviews she's done before. She says clearly, with an assertive voice, that she didn't write anything about sexual assault, and that people have misunderstood things about her private life. And millions of women and men who've experienced the last five years of conversations since Me Too understand her denial. Lupin. I don't understand if she decided not to、uh, talk about her experience anymore. I even totally understand she decided to deny what had happened. She has already did,、uh, done what she could, what she what she could do. Yeah, and、uh, she left、uh, she left the jobs to us. Desmond Shum, the businessman who spent time with some of China's top officials, tells me that he can imagine. That a lot of pressure could have been put on her, and her family, to get her to retract the allegations she made against Zhang Gaoli. He told me that from what he's seen, there's a lot of abuse of women and of mistresses at that level of China's politics. Exploitation is common, a given. He said. He told me he thinks the party will make an example of Peng Shui, to make sure that other women don't follow her lead. As for Zhang Gaoli. Desmond imagines there'll be no repercussions for him. Anyone who's made it to the minister level is way above the law, above everything except for factional politics. So where is Peng Shui now? She's probably under house arrest. Whether she has national security agents outside her place or inside her home, we don't know. Desmond thinks that once the media storm blows away, she won't be seen in public again. She won't live a free life. She'll be closely watched. Internationally, for now, Peng Shui's story is still going. Tennis players are showing support for her right now at the Australian Open. Hi, Garvinia.、Um, with the Beijing Olympics coming up and so much attention the last few months about Peng Shui, I was wondering what your thoughts are about her today. And I don't know. It's、uh, it's a little bit. Not moving forward, I feel it's just there since since months and months, and we've talked about it. It seemed like for a moment, like okay, we're going to find out what's happening, and things are going to be very difficult to find the real truth. And in their December statement, the IOC said they'd be meeting with Peng Shui in person in January. We've contacted them to ask them exactly when that meeting will be. They say it will be in the next couple of weeks in Beijing. 
In an email, they told us they're now following a strategy of silent diplomacy and that Peng Shui's physical integrity is their top priority. It's hard to think about how Peng Shui is feeling right now and whether she's wrestling with regret. But I wonder if part of her feels that she just couldn't stay silent any longer. I felt like a zombie. I was pretending so much every day that I didn't know who the real me was anymore. I shouldn't have come into this world, but I didn't have the courage to die. I wanted to live a simpler life, but things turned out contrary to what I wanted. It's too soon to tell what, if any, impact her post might have on the issues of sexual abuse and sexual harassment in China, or whether one day Peng Shui might be able to look back on that moment at 10 o'clock at night on the 2nd of November and feel that pressing send was worth it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. We'd really love to have you as a part of our newsroom, and I hope by now that you've got a sense of who we are as journalists and what we care about. So if you'd like to join in, you can. Our members can come along to our editorial meetings, which we call Thinkins, and you can inform our journalism and the stories that we tell. I'd really love to have you as my guest. So just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50, that's my name, B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you and do share this podcast, give us a five-star rating or tell your friends about us. I'll see you next week. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.